Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. In May 2018, the Community Foundation for Southern Arizona and the Arizona Daily Star held a presentation about the STARS investigation fixing our foster care crisis. Members of the STARS reporting team discussed their foster care research in Arizona. They also discussed which cities and states are doing a better job of keeping families together and ultimately what Arizona can learn from others to fix our foster care crisis. The Arizona Daily Star, with support from the Community Foundation for Southern Arizona and the USC Annenberg Center's Fund for Journalism on Child Well-Being, investigated how Arizona came to have one of the nation's highest rates of child removal and how we can help keep kids at home by helping at-risk families break generational cycles of trauma, neglect, or abuse. Four star journalists talked with more than 100 local, state, and national leaders in reform over the past year. They visited six U.S. states to see what programs are working to support families at home, transform child safety agencies, and guide children and families to a healthy future. Today on 30 Minutes, we'll hear an introduction from President and CEO of the Community Foundation for Southern Arizona, Clint Maybe discuss how they became involved in funding this in-depth investigation. Arizona Daily Star editor Jill Jordan-Spitz gave an overview of the project and their commitment to solutions-based journalism. Reporter Patty Machelor spoke about her research in Washington State and Colorado to learn how states and counties can keep kids from entering foster care by building stronger families. Later in the program, we'll hear from reporter Emily Bragel, who visited both Alabama and Allegheny County in western Pennsylvania and saw how formerly dysfunctional agencies became national models for reform. Here is Clint Maybe. The Community Foundation got really interested in foster care five years ago. And what happened, we were approached by the Arizona Community Foundation that wanted to bring a program called Foster Ed that paired every foster child with an educational champion that stayed with them during their life. They wanted to bring that model to Arizona. It had been proven effective in the rest of the country in, in helping kids uh, graduate not only from high school but get into college and graduate from college. We got the call and our donors stepped up and we said we're in. And we piloted the program in, in Pima County for three years. Um, and then in one of the few successes at the state legislature, we had the R's and D's get together and the governor passed legislation to make that program go statewide. Yay, as I look at an educational champion. <laughs> and about the time that that went statewide, the Arizona Community Foundation uh, did a report on the state of foster care um, from the individual perspective of a foster child here in the state with the Arizona Republic. Um, and that came out, and right after that, I got a call from Jill. And Jill said, boy, would you, the Community Foundation, also be interested in kind of doing an expose on the, the foster care situation here in the state and looking at effective models around the country? And I said, we're in. Um, but before I said we're in, I had to call a donor. 
to get it done. And we are lucky to be able to steward the, the legacy gift of Jeff Gilas. And uh, Jeff was a foster child. Um, Jeff was um, abused as a child before he was adopted by a loving home and he had um, mental difficulties the rest of his life. Um, but he lived in Lake Havasu and Jeff was Lake Havasu. Um, so if you ever went to a Lake Havasu high school sporting event, there was Jeff. Whether it was in his own golf cart giving everybody candy or whether it was there at the end of the bench of every basketball game. But Jeff was more than that. Uh, Jeff was the heart of Lake Havasu. It, he would go to the senior center every Valentine's Day and for every senior that didn't have a Valentine's card, he would write them one. He went to the hospital every holiday season and made sure that every single child had a gift. That's who Jeff was. And Jeff said, you know what my job is on earth? It's to make somebody smile every day. And that's the beauty of, of what can happen. It's great to see his legacy now passed and the great work done by the team here at the Arizona Daily Star. And it was superb work uh, in the investigative report and I can't thank you enough. So with that, I'll introduce Jill to introduce the project. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. We truly appreciate it. I'm Jill Jordan-Spitz. I'm editor of the Arizona Daily Star. Uh, as Clint said, this kind of work is really very important to us. Uh, solutions journalism is a, it's a kind of a new trend, but it's something that we are really deeply committed to. We realize that journalists and journalism gets a lot of uh, criticism these days for being too negative. And watchdog journalism is incredibly important to us and will always continue to be so. But this is our city too, and we love it too, and it matters to us that this is a wonderful place to live. And so finding solutions instead of just pointing out what's wrong is important to us. So with this project, what we wanted to do, we had written a lot about what's wrong with Arizona's foster care system. We'd read a lot about what's wrong with Arizona's foster care system. And what we wanted to do is find a way to do it better and sort of to create a prescription that hopefully Arizona could follow to do better. So we put together this wonderful reporting team and we set out to find models around the country of places that were doing it better. We divided them up into what ended up being three sort of buckets. Prevention is pretty self-explanatory. Intervention being once we reach the point where the child and the family are removed, are there ways to do that to keep it from happening or to make it less painful for all involved and less traumatic for all involved. And reinvention, so that's two parts. One is kids who age out of the foster care system, which we know is, is such a huge problem. And also once families are reunited, ways to keep them healthy and strong and keep them together. So they found models, uh, counties, states, places that were doing it right. Uh, so sending four reporters to eight different places is pretty darn expensive, and money is not exactly falling from the sky in our newsroom these days. So we went to the Community Foundation of Southern Arizona hoping for support and got full support. So all of their travel, the forums that we're doing now, and we're working now on a play with the Center for Investigative Reporting that will bring the ideas that these guys explored in their stories in a creative way and hopefully reach more people. And all of that was funded by the Community Foundation of Southern Arizona, and we are incredibly, incredibly grateful for their support. We simply 
could not have done this without their support. So thank you, Clint, and your team. We are deeply in your debt. The reporters are going to introduce themselves and, and tell you a, a bit about what they've learned. But what I wanted to do is first show you um, a video that introduces our project. These guys will each talk about what they learned. And at the end, we're going to show one more, a very short video. And then we'll open it up to questions. Thanks for being here. And I'll start the video. For years, we've heard about Arizona's foster care crisis. Children sleeping in CPS offices, overwhelmed caseworkers, and millions spent caring for kids removed from their homes. But there's been much less discussion of the root causes for the crisis, the sustained lack of support for Arizona's families. Between 2008 and 2016, the number of Arizona children in foster care more than doubled from 9,000 to nearly 19,000, with most of the increase due to neglect. During that time, Arizona legislators cut $276 million from social services that help prevent abuse and neglect. That includes subsidies to help poor families pay for childcare. Without that help, some parents must choose between losing their job and leaving their kids home alone, leading to more neglect cases. While recent reforms by the Arizona Department of Child Safety are showing results, the agency can't fix foster care on its own. A team of four-star reporters spent nearly a year traveling to states and counties where child welfare reforms have proven successful. Reporters talked with more than 100 leaders in child welfare reform about what's still needed to transform Arizona's foster care system. Solutions include funding intensive in-home services to strengthen troubled families and help avoid the traumatizing decision to remove a child from home. Caseworkers need reasonable caseloads, better training and support, and plenty of services to help kids and families involved with the system. Families that are reunited and kids who age out of foster care on their own need continued support to succeed and break the cycle of trauma in their families. Sustaining change will require commitment from policymakers and state leaders. It's a daunting task, but success stories from across the country prove that lasting change is possible. Good morning. My name is Patty McAlor, and I'm one of the reporters who worked on the project. As Jill said, we often do stories that are about problems in the community, but we rarely have the opportunity, the time, the money, to really look at what solutions might be to those problems. And that wasn't the case with this project. We were able to really delve into what's going on with Arizona's children. Uh, with Arizona's families, with its foster care system, and ways that things aren't going well, uh, ways that things are going well. And then we took that information and looked at other states to see what we might learn from what they're doing and bring it back here and say, what if we applied this here? So my portion was on prevention. And not just prevention in terms of programs that work well, as many of you probably are familiar, evidence-based programs, but also the underlying reasons why so many of Arizona's families are languishing, why so many families are living in a state of perpetual crisis. And these are themes that are probably familiar to many of you, poverty, uh, intergenerational trauma, addiction, untreated mental health problems. And when I started, I've written about children in the juvenile court center for years, but when I started researching for this project and reading some of the recent data, in particular things that have happened since the Great Recession and cuts in funding to programs that support families, I was shocked to see how poorly Arizona is faring. And in terms of trauma, for example, 
Arizona ranks collectively, as far as children are concerned, as one of the poorest states in the nation. 31% of children in Arizona have experienced two or more traumatic events, traumatic events that are serious enough to affect their mental health. The national average is 21%. That was one startling finding. We hear a lot about addiction, uh, no surprise, but when you start looking at the dependency cases that are going through the juvenile court center, more than 70% of the cases have one or more adult struggling with addiction, one or more parents or caregivers struggling with addiction. The rate of mental health problems that are cited in the juvenile court cases since 2008 to, I believe it was 2016, it has increased 52%. So something isn't going right in the community, obviously. And the way I see it, for what it's worth, is that it's kind of a collection of all these things together. And so in looking at prevention, we need to look at the front door you know, what's happening in terms of supporting Arizona's families and changing patterns that contribute to trauma and contribute to poverty. So one of the first things that I did is I tried to find a family that was, one, utilizing one of our best-known programs, which is uh, Healthy Families. Not best-known, but one of our best programs. It's evidence-based. It's utilized, as many of you are probably familiar, in a lot of places around the country. They know how to apply it, and they know the results. And if you're trying to convince lawmakers to invest in this program, it also has a good return on the dollar. I can't remember. It might be for every dollar invested, it's $6 back. So, And this is science. It's not debatable. They use what's called meta-analysis. And uh, I'll get to that in just a moment because I learned a lot about that tried to learn a lot about that when I went to Washington State. So this is my story about Christine Haley and just following, she's local, she's in Pima County. Uh, She has uh, had six children. She was sexually assaulted when she was 13. Had a pretty tough upbringing. There was involvement with the Department of Child Safety. Uh, She started drinking. She drank a lot when she was in her early 20s. And typical things that you find with families who are struggling. And she also did really well once she got linked up with healthy families. And she felt supported and she felt heard. An element of, I want to use the word respect, but it's, she didn't feel like anyone was talking down to her. She felt like they were coming in and genuinely trying to help her and weren't looking at her as someone who didn't have it together and what's the matter with you kind of attitude. And she told me the caseworkers really helped. She felt heard. So looking at her issues, and then I tried to look at how Arizona's funding has failed her in particular, but overall, you know, our funding, this woman right here is uh, Tasala Grijalva, and she's a single mom, and she just finished her PhD at the University of Arizona, and she has a full ride to Duke University. She's worked very hard, and she needed a little bit of, this is an example of Arizona's need to support these families more. She needed a little bit of help through the end of her senior year, or her last year, rather, excuse me, at the University of Arizona, with childcare, but since her husband paid child support, and it wasn't very much, I think it was about $1,100 a month, she had lost her job, and she needed a little bit of help to get through to the end of the year, and she didn't qualify for services through TANF 
because her husband paid child support. And she's living below the, well below the poverty level. She said they're eating ramen noodles to get through to the end of the month. She also received SNAP, some SNAP benefits. But other states that I started learning about, Colorado in particular, use federal funding like TANF, which stands for Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, as the original tenants dictate, which is childcare, cash assistance, uh, things that are meant to help families that are in transition, uh, help families through times of crisis, unemployment. In the case of this woman, it was to help her finish her PhD, and she couldn't get the services. And it's not very much money either. We're not talking about thousands of dollars a month. It's a small, well, with childcare, you're talking more money, but she needed a little bit of help. Her girls were a little older. So she got by. She's resourceful. But so many families, she's unusual, and she's resourceful, and she's connected, and the people at the University of Arizona supported her through that time. But somebody like the first woman that was up on the screen, Christina, she wouldn't have had the, the ability to do that. Now she's starting to learn how to be resourceful. So I visited Colorado, two counties in Colorado. They are county-based systems, so they are able to manage what's happening in their child safety systems locally, which was advantageous, certainly, from what I saw. I'm sure that there's disadvantages. But in Colorado Springs, they use TANF funding, as I started to say, particularly to eradicate poverty. And they see getting people up out of poverty as the key to addressing family crisis and helping children, particularly when it comes to neglect. That's not you know, probably any surprise to anybody here that that would be a, a big factor. But convincing legislators that it's worthwhile to invest in this type of work, this work at the front door is what's tricky. So when you go to Colorado Springs, they've been able to make tremendous strides in eradicating poverty and keeping children out of the child welfare system. And to the north of Colorado Springs is Larimer County, where they've also done tremendous work with, in particular, collaboration. Their whole focus is on prevention. So when a family is brought to the attention of the system, the providers come together. Again, this is county-based, so it's easier. They don't have the bureaucracy of the state. But they come together, and they try to tailor the services to the needs of the family. So their results have been tremendous. I think it's been about eight to ten years, and they have, for every thousand children, 2.4 children end up in the foster care system. That was as of last spring. Whereas in Pima County, it's ten out of every thousand. That was as of last spring. Now, our numbers have gone down. We're, we've improved there. I think we're closer to five now. So you could look at that and say, well, we're on our way to that. Well, are children any safer? When you look at the comparison between children dying of maltreatment in Colorado and Arizona, we're still faring very poorly in that regard. Colorado's doing very well. Arizona's climbed. I think it's 5.2. And Colorado's dropped. So... We're not removing as many children from their homes, but without addressing prevention issues, are there any safer? Toward the end of the project, I want to research that more, but, but uh, that was a question that begged to be answered because if our children aren't safe in their homes, then all this is for naught, obviously. In Washington State, a couple of things that stand out. One is that their 
equivalent of our first things first is called the Department of Early Learning. And the Department of Early Learning was started about five or six years ago, I believe. And they've had such tremendous results by focusing on the first five years, emphasizing prevention and supporting families, obviously promoting literacy and school readiness, that the legislators, bipartisan, took notice. After a while, they had to acknowledge just how well this department was doing and what their results were telling them about how to really help families. And Governor Inslee started a commission to really research whether uh, some of these programs should be being utilized more across the board. And legislation passed last July to merge their child safety system and their Department of Early Learning. So it's all going to be in one building, and the caseworkers are going to be collaborating to support families. That isn't to say that children, some, in some cases, children need to be removed from their homes. In more cases than not, with intensive services and a shift in the approach, a lot of the children can stay home and avoid the trauma of a removal, and you can undo these cycles that are contributing to poverty, intergenerational trauma, addiction, mental health. So I just kept coming back to that beginning over and over again. And in Colorado and in uh, Washington, they're seeing that. And they're putting their money and their resources where it can do the most good instead of trying to mend things later on and along the line, as you know, the metaphor of the river. So on the banks of the river, instead of pulling out the drowning uh, children or families, so to speak. Another thing in Washington that we don't have here, as a matter of fact, I think Washington is the only state in the nation, there might be one more, that has a public policy institute. Uh, it's nonpartisan, and they do their research for the legislators and also for, obviously, publications that are circulated around the country. But they study the programs and the return on the dollar for the programs, as I mentioned earlier, the meta-analysis. And they've been able to utilize that in order to use the best programs possible to maximize you know, the, the bang for your buck on the programs that are being used and to have people who are skeptical about investing in those programs say, you know what, in the long run, we're going to see a return on this socially and financially, if that's a big concern as well. So I found that quite interesting and inspiring to see how there's a science now behind some of this that they can see over time how much it costs when a child is abused or neglected and ends up needing extra services at school. Is at risk for incarceration, uh, addiction, mental health problems, things that could be avoided if the money went to the child early on. One last thing, because my colleagues need to get up here and I could talk all day, is Colorado has recently seen tremendous results in family planning. And, you know, it's, it's a hard topic to bring up sometimes with these stories and it makes people squirm maybe a little bit in our state, but you can't deny the results of what's happened in Colorado. A private donor donated millions of dollars to their uh, family planning program, statewide program, and they were able to reduce the rate of unintended pregnancy 
between 2009 and 2016, 54% for girls ages 15 to 19, and 30% for women ages 20 to 24. And the reason that I bring that up is probably fairly obvious, but that a lot of the people who are getting involved in the child welfare system are very young. You know, they're single mothers, they're young. It's not time to have, arguably not time to have a baby yet. You don't have a career in trying to get these services to these young women to say, you can wait. It's better to wait and be ready and work out the things that you need to work out while you're young before you have the responsibility of a child. So in particular for young women who have experienced trauma. So 7% of Arizona's babies are born to teen moms. One in four children under the age of six lives in poverty. And women with the highest rate of unintended pregnancies are low income and between the ages of 18 and 24. To me, the whole project could have been that we need to help these women wait to have children. Thank you. You are listening to a joint presentation by the Community Foundation for Southern Arizona and the Arizona Daily Star about the STARS investigation fixing our foster care crisis on 30 Minutes, 91.3 KXCI Tucson. Hi, I'm Emily Bragel. So my part of the project focused on um, after prevention, if, if prevention efforts have failed, what happens when a child comes into the system or a family is more deeply engaged with the system? How can we improve the system itself so it functions better and really does the least harm possible to the kids and families involved? So I visited Alabama and Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, which is Pittsburgh, to see their reforms in action. And when I was trying to come up with which stories I'd write, how to organize this, I decided to, to not focus on like very specific, localized programs, but these kind of broader ideas and philosophies that these places had that um, allowed them to make such dramatic improvements. One story I have was about empower your caseworkers, allow them to have a manageable caseload so they can actually do their job well, the job they really want to do. Two, have a wide array of individualized services available for families, not just cookie cutter services that the families might not actually need, but resources for those caseworkers to use to actually help the families reunite. And third, support kinship families, which is relatives who care for children who have been removed from their parents. And today, 45% of Arizona's foster kids are in unlicensed uh, kinship families. Unlicensed means they, they don't get the, um, the benefits that a licensed foster family gets in terms of financial support from the state. So they're, they're some of the best placements you can have for kids, the most stable placements, least traumatic, because there's more familiarity from those family ties. But here in Arizona, we don't really help those families succeed. So, but underlying all of those solutions are some core concepts that is sort of what I'm going to talk about now. Uh, and those concepts are things like you have to work with the parents as partners, not adversaries, and focus on doing whatever it takes to keep families together or reunite them, even if those families aren't the ideal. The message I just heard over and over again from reformers was even the most well-designed child welfare system can't function if it's overwhelmed by, by a ton of children. It's just not possible. Uh, with too many kids in the system, you can't have manageable caseloads for caseworkers. And then those caseworkers, they can't do the type of thorough investigations if there's a report of abuse or neglect. And they can't have time to follow up as they should, as they'd want to, with those families working to get their kids back together. So uh, that was kind of the, the main message that I took from, from talking to those experts. A lot of the solutions I wrote about were really predicated on the preventive work that, that Patty reported on. Uh, this is It's all intertwined. So 
much. So the basic idea, which was summed up really well by a child welfare reform expert, Richard Wexler, he said basically there is no good child welfare system. No child does well in the system. Obviously, sometimes you you need to remove a child from their family, but there's far too many cases where we, especially in Arizona, are removing unnecessarily and doing real harm to children in the process. So, And that kind of leads to the worst case scenario where you have these rushed child welfare investigations where you're both unnecessarily removing kids who maybe if you had more time could have stayed at home and maybe you're leaving other children in dangerous situations. So it's kind of the, the worst case scenario. And I would just want to talk a little bit about what I heard from Tucson foster children here about their experiences in the system just to kind of show why it is so important that, that caseworkers are able to function and do their job and only bring kids into the system when it's necessary. Um, and their experiences had so many parallels, but uh, the kids talked about how despite whatever their family had done to them that prompted uh, CPS involvement, they loved their family and they were very confused and devastated when they were taken from their homes. Once in the system, pretty much all the kids I've talked to uh, bounced from foster home to foster home between group homes, residential treatment centers. They, they didn't have stability in their life and didn't feel there was anyone they could trust and just felt very alone. Each time they got a new caseworker, they had to relive their trauma by telling their story over and over again. And what I kept hearing was they just felt that no one actually cared about what happened to them. So a lot of these kids who I interviewed are in their 20s now, and they're just starting to cope with what they, what they have been through. And most of them got off of a ton of the medications. Some still, some were needed, but some of these kids were on 10 medications as under age 10 in some cases. So they definitely are just beginning to to heal and and the system did not help them do that at all. And one study I want to point out is showing that children who stay with their own problematic families actually tend to do better than those who are removed when it's a situation where it's not egregious abuse, where yes, you certainly need to take, take the kid into custody, where it's one of those cases where it could go either way. Uh, this 2007 study looked at 15,000 children over 12 years in cases where it was sort of a judgment call uh, to remove or not. 12 years later, the kids who, whose families were investigated but who stayed at home were less likely to become teenage parents, juvenile delinquents, and more likely to have jobs as young adults. So mainly the key ingredient for most of the reforms that I wrote about was to get away from this idea that when in doubt, it's the safest bet to, to remove a child from home. As one expert put, it, an unnecessary removal is just as big a mistake as leaving a child in an unsafe situation. So the best thing policymakers can do is minimize reliance on the child welfare system whenever possible by supporting families and just try to ensure the system does the least harm possible. So that's kind of the main message I took that all of our reporting was so interconnected. You, you need system-wide reform that both focuses on the front door, the middle, and the back end, which um, Sarah is going to talk about keeping families reunited so they don't come right back into the system. Thank you. We'll have to leave it there. You've been listening to a joint presentation by the Community Foundation for Southern Arizona and the Arizona Daily Star about the STARS investigation fixing our foster care crisis on 30 Minutes, 91.3 KXCI Tucson. Our speakers today were Community Foundation for Southern Arizona President and CEO Clint Maybe. Arizona Daily Star editor Jill Jordan-Spitz, reporter Patty Matchler, and reporter Emily Bregel. This is part one of a two-part series. You can read more on the Arizona Daily Star's website at Tucson.com. You can find this and all recent episodes of 30 Minutes at KXCI.org. Thank you for listening. 
I'm Amanda Schauger. <laughs>